Stanford University. Hello again, and thanks for tuning in. This podcast is from the Collaboration for Poverty Research, produced by the Stanford Center for the Study of Poverty and Inequality. My name's Diantha Parker, and today on the podcast, why is it that high-level executives make so much more money than almost anyone else in the workforce? The average salary of a CEO is six times higher than it was in 1980, and some people think that's not a good thing. It may give people comfort that other firms are doing it, but it shouldn't. Meanwhile, there are more ways companies can make money now, and so there's more at stake. That means it's important to pick the right person for the job. You don't want the best cabinet appointment in the government to be running the Postal Service. You want them to be the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State. Speaking of which, you remember those large firms that got bailout money from the government. President Barack Obama appointed a special czar to look at how compensation was structured there, starting a national and ongoing conversation about the issue. So we'll look at three theories about how and why corporate pay is so lavish, and a few views on how to rein it in. If you're not in the corporate world, it's sometimes hard to see what makes one executive worth millions more dollars than the next. But over the past 30 years, executives have become as rich and sometimes as famous as movie stars or professional athletes. They're the focus of bidding wars and complicated contracts. But some people think celebrity salaries are actually a helpful way to illustrate what's happened in the business world. Javier Gebeks of New York University, along with Alex Edmonds of the University of Pennsylvania, say that the right CEO is as valuable to a company as, say, star pitcher Derek Jeter is to the New York Yankees. That's because baseball has become such a giant global business that Jeter's value to the company translates into millions more than what he takes home. And Edmonds says the same is true of more indoor CEOs. If you think of, say, Steve Jobs of Apple, um, what um, Apple's done in terms of launching new products such as the iPad or, or the iPod or the iPhone, these are things which have revolutionized uh, people's lives and it, they've created a lot of good products which customers have enjoyed and because the firm has expanded, this gives lots of jobs to employees and has also created a lot of shareholder value. Um, and the same is, is true for other CEOs uh, such as, say, Google. If you think w- the world would be very different if we didn't have the Google search engine. Edmund says even less famous or influential CEOs are having these ripple effects in the economy, and that just because we can't see what they're doing doesn't mean they're any less valuable to their companies. We can see Derek Jeter make a play or, or, or hit a home run, but people seem to have in mind the idea that, that CEOs are not talented. All they do is they sit in their office, um, fly around in corporate jets, play a few rounds of golf. They're not doing anything that any ordinary person can do. But I think this is an unfair characterization of, of, of CEOs. The world's become aware of certain CEOs who did not live up to their potential, like Dick Fold of AIG and Jeff Skilling of Enron. But Edmund says the overall increase in CEO value is due to the many executives who make their companies richer by toiling in successful obscurity. 
a CEO who does his job correctly is not going to make the news, just as you're going to report a, a bridge collapsing. But if the bridge did not collapse, you're not going to write a headline saying the Brooklyn Bridge carried its traffic today. Um, so it's because these high-profile anecdotal examples get put into the media. That's why perhaps we think that they're much more prevalent than they actually are. Market forces may play a role in the rise of high salaries, but so does corporate culture, says Jesse Fried, a professor at Harvard Law School. Fried and his Harvard colleague Lucian Bebchuk have written extensively on how pay arrangements get brokered, and they point out that executive salaries are approved by company boards. Now, these are people who don't work with the CEOs every day, and many boards, in fact, most boards, get their information from a hired outsider. The pay consultant goes through, you know, a song and dance show where, he, you know, where he explains that this pay is reasonable and it's sort of within the norm of what other companies are doing. The board members ask a few questions so that they can be on record as having asked a few questions and having paid attention. There's a corporate secretary who's taking notes, and then they approve the package. Fried says personal relationships are part of this reticence. Lots of the people sitting around in the boardroom are there because the CEO they're talking about recommended them. And maybe this CEO is on boards that decide some of their salaries. And it's not to criticize these directors as people. I'm not saying that they have some sort of ethical failing. They're acting like rational people given the setting in which they are operating. Most people in that situation would just say, you know, if the compensation consultant says that it's within the range of what other f comparable firms are doing and it seems reasonable to us, fine, we'll just go with it. Fried says the fact that other companies are doing the same thing may make this seem okay to board members. But it shouldn't. Practices evolve that are convenient for the people that are doing them. It doesn't mean that they are the right thing to do. He adds that corporate practice has been heading this way since the 1930s, when transparency about salaries became a bit more subtle. That included doing things like writing out numbers as words so that the amounts that were being paid to executives would not jump off the page to somebody who was uh, scanning quickly the document. Now, in 1992, the SEC cottoned onto this and started requiring firms to disclose executive salary in a special table using actual numbers. But Freed says consultants then worked out ways to pay CEOs that didn't have to be reported in this table. In response, 15 years later, the SEC changed the laws again. But Freed says these still don't affect what he thinks is the real issue the social dynamics of the boards that greenlight salaries in the first place. Jesse Fried agrees with Alex Edmonds that certain CEOs are worth more than others and that corporations are just trying to attract and keep the best talent possible with these high pay packages. But Robert Frank, who's a behavioral economist at Cornell, says salaries have risen exponentially because the market for competitive talent got so big so fast. Going back to Derek Jeter and baseball for a minute, Frank agrees Jeter's paid a lot because these days it's worth it to the Yankees to keep him. But he points out that until the 1970s, there was a law in baseball called the Reserve Clause that forbid teams from poaching or wooing each other's players. A team drafted you, you were the property of the team, 
if you turned out to be a star, it was their good luck. They didn't have to pay you much because nobody else could bid for your services. Frank says there was never an actual law that prevented competitive hiring in the business world. But it was just, I think, a longstanding belief that if you hadn't worked your whole life, uh, your whole career in the same company, you wouldn't really be in a good position to lead the company. You had to really master the details of the company coming up through the ranks. And so that meant that when the time came for a CEO to retire, there were really only one or two even uh, remotely plausible replacement candidates from the inside. Uh, you didn't have to really bid hard to retain them because where were they going to go if nobody believed they'd be uh, suitable for hiring in a different environment, then they weren't, weren't going to leave if you didn't offer them a big salary. So CEOs were quite content to work for about a tenth or even less uh, than what they are now. Frank thinks the wind really changed in 1993, because that's when IBM, which was ailing terribly, hired a new CEO named Louis Gerstner. Now, Gerstner was not even a computer guy. He'd worked at American Express. But he turned IBM around, and he made shareholders many times his salary in extra returns on their stock. And now everybody's optimistic. They think they can hire a, a savior from some other place that'll come in and, and, and right the ship. And, you know, that's led to this huge explosive growth in executive salaries. Uh, they don't need salaries that high to be willing to come to work. You know, we know in other countries they're happy to work for much less. In this country they, they were too. But when the going rate goes up, people won't work for less than the going rate. They'll say, Why, how can I justify to my family taking your offer when somebody else is offering me twice as much? Companies know that a CEO's decision can mean millions of dollars earned or lost. So Robert Frank says it's worth it to compete for the best person. And he thinks salary caps are a bad idea for this reason, because if the money's the same everywhere, people will just take the easiest jobs. You don't want the best cabinet appointment in the government to be running the Postal Service. You want them to be the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State. It's the same in corporate life. If you have somebody uh, who's really good, you want that person running a really big, important corporation where the deci decisions, each of them, matter much more. Frank also agrees with Jesse Fried's point that people who earn a lot become used to it quickly and that the norm of the incredibly high salary has led to other norms, bigger mansions, fancier cars, just more lavish spending overall. But Frank thinks people with so much money to burn could spend it differently. You know, it's 1500 bucks when you blow a wheel and tire on your Porsche 911. Uh, and it's no fun to drive the car on a, a rutted road compared to what it would be on a decent road. So, yeah, maybe the, the car you'd end up buying would get from 0 to 60 in 4 seconds instead of 3.7 seconds. But that's still enough to give most people a thrill. And if the standard were a little more forgiving, you wouldn't even notice that it was uh, not quite as fast as it could have been. But you would notice that the, the roads were paved. So, OK, Frank, Edmonds and Freed all agree that it's a hard call to tell people to spend less or earn less. But they do have ideas of how inflated salaries could be controlled. For starters, both Freed and Edmonds think companies should take a closer look at compensation agreements themselves. CEOs can't have incentives to cash out their stock early. So Edmonds and Gebeck suggest something called an incentive account, divided 60-40 between stock and cash. As the firm's value goes up and down, the executive needs to use cash to keep buying enough stock to keep the account balanced. And the CEO won't get the full value of the account till several years after he leaves. 
Jesse Fried also looks at stock as a partial solution. He thinks CEOs shouldn't be paid according to what their company's stock is worth, but compared to the change in stock price across their industry. Fried says some companies have already started to do this, and he's also calling for policy that lets shareholders play a bigger role in deciding how much CEOs get paid. He says that might chill cronyism in the boardroom, but it could also mean that board members won't feel pressured to approve these pay packages to maintain their personal and professional relationships. Finally, Robert Frank suggests that one way of scaling back would be to leave earnings alone. Instead, he says, get rid of the income tax and replace it with what he calls a steeply progressive tax on what people spend. That's a very powerful incentive to save a little extra and not spend on the addition to your mansion. If you save a little extra, uh, that's tax-free. It goes untaxed until you or somebody else spends it. Frank thinks savings in the bank would be only the first benefit to this tax. Another one might be that if people feel they can spend less, they won't feel the need to keep earning more than the next executive does. Gradually, companies wouldn't need to pay as much to keep top talent happy. And the norm of the astronomical corporate salary might finally start to fade. That's all for this edition of the podcast from Stanford University's Collaboration for Poverty Research. Our funding is generously provided by the Elfenworks Foundation. Our music is by Pharos. The editor of this podcast series is Christopher Weimer. I'm Diantha Parker, and thanks for joining us. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.